Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. Hey, so uh, I wasn't here last week, actually. <laughs> uh, what's up? So one thing that's up is that we're back in our um, Toronto studio where we, uh, where we had our humble beginnings for this podcast, and it's actually just the two of us without Dave. So if this episode sounds horrible, that's why. Hi, Dave. We miss you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I miss you guys, too. I was like, they took a shot at me on the podcast. I was like, no, they're correct. I am analog. I am analog. <laughs> I didn't think there was a shot at it's you. It's not <laughs> being <Yeah>. silly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, uh, I missed last week, but now I'm back. And um, excited to get into this episode. But I have to say, and I don't know if you agree with me, I thought the musical pickings were like pretty sparse <laughs> this week. And if we're trying to pick songs from each episode, I guess we kind of just need to go with the least worst of them. <laughs> the one I wish we could find is there's this, at the beginning, there's some traditional, I think it's Japanese um, taiko drumming. I didn't think I noticed that. And it's super cool, but I could not, I don't know if that was produced for the show or if that's a track that we just couldn't find. So instead, we're, uh, we're going to play this track for you, um, Churches Under the Tide. <laughs> a bit different where I think we're seeing some episodes that really focus down on one character's storyline primarily. Yeah, like we just said that Tyrell episode and it seems like this episode is more Darlene-centric. And it's nice to see Darlene back, but I have to say I feel like she's a bit diminished in this season. It seems like um, one thing that's kind of constant through this season so far is that all of the characters' relationships are deteriorating. You're right that that's um, the case with Darlene but I think it's also coming up in various ways with Angela, with Tyrell, even with Mr. Robot. And it seems like, at this point, everybody just hates everybody else. Yeah, it does. It does. They're really falling apart. We see Darlene sleeping on the subway in her Lolita glasses, and she gets up to confront someone. Did this scene remind you of uh, the pilot, like when we very first saw Elliot? Because that's what was playing in my mind when I was watching this. Was that scene on the subway? Yeah. So um, like you were saying, she confronts someone because she catches on to the fact that they've stolen her wallet. It's interesting the way she confronts her. Like, Darlene is very, very calm, and the subway car is almost empty, and this woman denies it initially. Darlene, she's kind of smart, though, and I think that she sees right through that. I think she does, too. Um, and now, you said this scene reminded you of something else. Yeah, well, I've been seeing the season so far. I've had a lot of Pulp Fiction references. And there's a moment here where she asks the pickpocket for their wallet back. And I kind of expected her to be like, it's the one that says bad motherfucker on it. <laughs> because <laughs> there's that scene in Pulp Fiction where um, Samuel Jackson's character gets robbed. And when he eventually gets his wallet back, he lets them keep the money from it. Which is also what Darlene does here. She asks only for a Polaroid back out of the wallet. And I think that's the Polaroid of Elliot and his mother that she took from Elliot's apartment. Yeah, I think so. In the last episode. Um, and then she kind of has, we've seen this from Darlene before, where she has these explosive public oversharing moments. <laughs> because she tells the woman it's okay to keep the wallet because she has already stolen from every person that's on that train. She claims responsibility for 5-9, for the murder of the E-Corp lawyer, 
It's basically like in that first season where she's yelling, I'm a menace to society. <laughs> yeah, she's basically doing the same thing here in more abstract terms. It made me think, though, that I wouldn't necessarily buy it if someone was telling me that on the subway because they're probably just some crazy person. I have a theory, and you can tell me if I'm making too much of this. Is it that she's going to die and that's why this doesn't matter? <laughs> no. Okay, what is no. it? <laughs> My theory is that because she is a young woman, no matter what she does or says publicly, nobody thinks she's <laughs> credible and nobody listens to her. I could believe that, although that is unfortunate. I might be overblowing it, but I thought, how many people could go out in the streets and scream that they've like done all these things? Or, you know, if a creepy stranger said that to you in the subway, like there might be some people that might make you think, hey, maybe I should call the cops. But she just she's under the radar. I don't think anyone thinks she could even be responsible for those things. I, I can relate that to a really um, recent episode of Game of Thrones where Arya Stark, who's like a young girl in that show, is on the way to King's Landing to kill Cersei the Queen as revenge for basically like the whole plot up until that point. Sorry if this is spoilers, by the way. But she runs into um, like a group of Lannister soldiers who work for the Queen. And they kind of like hang out around a campfire for a while and there's all kinds of tension because they don't know that she's plotting to kill the queen and they wouldn't be very happy if uh, they found out. But when they ask her where she's going, she just says, I'm going to King's Landing to kill the queen. And all of them just burst out laughing because they don't think that that can actually be true. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so, so anyway, that's a tangential theory. This, what I also like about this episode is I have one more inconsequential theory that I've had for a long time. It's going to be proven true. So we're going to come <laughs> back to that later in the episode. Let's cut now to Dom back at the safe house. I think that this is another correct theory you had because we saw... Um, the Comet Electric car here again. And you would notice that they spent a lot of screen time on that. And maybe that was for a reason. And it looks like that was kind of what Elliot was hiding behind on the way to the safe house. One thing I learned recently is that Sam Esmail actually has a feature film called Comet. Oh, that's cool. It must be a reference to that. We should, uh, we should do a special episode on that one as well. Darlene is out. She is not... So we're cutting back in time a tiny bit because this is Elliot coming upon the safe house. Yeah. Which occurred in the la actually in the last episode. We get a glimpse of this. Yeah, and he does some digging around to kind of try and find out some information from... Like, does he look in their garbage? Yeah, he's in the garbage, yeah. which he refers to as metadata. <laughs> yeah, and there's lots to talk about about metadata. Uh, maybe I'll get into that later. Uh, he eventually gets in by picking the lock also. That that was kind of cool to come up again. What's interesting, I was trying to think back to the last episode because Darlene, it appears, hacks him. But I think at that time, she's also maybe... She's kind of giving him some information on the on the DL, where you know he's obviously going to become alert to what she's done. So, in I think perhaps even deliberately has given him the information he needs to fish the FBI to get the location of this place. I could buy that. I think that they have a very complicated relationship right now because. Like, Darlene is obviously in a bind, like, between a rock and a hard place. And I don't think that she wants, like, I think that she still likes Elliot. And I think that yeah. she doesn't want to turn him in or anything like that. I think that she's just kind of had her arm twisted. I think that it's reasonable that she's trying to restrict what information about him he, she brings to Dom. Uh, and conversely, it might make sense that she kind of tries to give information to Elliot about Dom, but kind of under the radar, like you were saying. Can I ask a stupid question? Why is this new agent there with her? And who is this guy? Uh, I don't know. He's kind Just, of a goofball. <laughs> yeah. And obviously we know that Santiago is kind of onto 
uh, bigger and darker things. Maybe he's busy and that's why she's got this new guy? Yeah, because I know he's in the last episode, but I don't really recall how he gets introduced. I don't think that we've seen him before, but maybe I've just been, like, I'm notoriously unobservant, so uh, don't put it past me. Because I think he's pretty freaked out that Elliot's there and his move, like, his best thought is really just, like, let's bust him. You know, it's time. He's going to blow our lead asset. Like, everything's over. And Dom tells him to be patient. I think she's going her own way a little bit in this episode. Me too. Uh, And it's interesting because in the Dom-Darlene parallel, they both try to go their own way. And Mm -hmm. then, of course, they clash right when that (laughs) happens. Dom plays this off with, like, um, a lot of finesse, I thought, because... When I saw um, the cliffhanger when Elliot had arrived at the safe house, I was really trying to imagine any way that this could end without um, Dom and Elliot having a confrontation. So I'm really surprised that that didn't happen in this episode. I like that. I think Dom, they kind of pull back on her character and like it's less human and less interesting in the last couple of episodes. So I think we see some kind of return of Dom in this one. Yeah. Where it's, you know, more three dimensional and, and more intriguing. Yeah. So Dom pieces out. Darlene has just arrived. And she has a tip that Elliot is waiting in her apartment, kind of like she often does to him. <laughs> um, they, they, they talk, and Elliot does confront her about the fact that she's hacked him. Well, Elliot's shocked about a lot of things, and so he sets up a voice blocker, some kind of noise interference, because he knows the place is bugged. So the FBI is watching, but they can't hear any of I don't, this. Have you heard about anything like that before? I don't know if that's actually like, existing technology. <laughs> to be honest, I thought he was just playing a radio to muddy the sound. Oh, yeah, that'd be pretty simple. But The agent refers to it as like some kind of voice protection. Yeah. But I thought, I think it like might be a radio. <laughs> I think that might be it. Could be, because I haven't heard of any like voice protector. I think Elliot's mostly shocked to learn she has a, a home. Yeah. Because remember, Darlene's been functionally homeless for this whole period of time. You know, that's right. I hadn't really thought about that. I guess she'd probably been staying with Cisco. I guess she must have been, or couch surfing, or who knows. But he's pretty shocked to find that she has a, an actual address. Darlene's pretty freaked out because remember the last time that she saw him, he was in Mr. Robot and he hurt her and scared her. Yeah, like he actually was physically violent with her. So I'm pretty surprised that she was even willing to go in there. Elliot does confront her. He says, we don't hack each other. But of course, I think all the rules of engagement are really changed. And this goes back to what you were saying about these relationships are really falling apart as everyone's risk and paranoia grows. I think that relates to something that Darlene says, though, because... From her perspective, I think that she didn't hack Elliot. She hacked Mr. Robot. And she kind of says something to that effect because she realizes that the person she's talking to might not even be Elliot, so to say. And she says that she hacked Mr. Robot because she doesn't trust him. And so I think we're going to come back to these two later. So now we have a cut to the Red Wheelbarrow Barbecue. Irving's here meeting with Angela. He describes it as, you know, like a regular sort of a staff meeting. Cute. (laughs) Cute. He's eating ribs for breakfast. I personally hate ribs so this whole scene was just like really disgusting to me yeah i can't imagine ever eating ribs uh yeah i just i guess that it's a barbecue place though what are you gonna do my friends make fun of me because the one time i've eaten ribs in the past like 20 years i used a fork and knife and they still don't give me a break about that no they still talk about it <laughs> so irving is there to tell angela they are going to deploy stage two on september 29th so this helps us anchor it in time a little bit Because he says that's 10 days from now. Yeah, so this is actually taking place on my birthday. I didn't notice that. This is your birthday. I caught that. (laughs) Now, I think here Angela is worried. And I think she's worried like any person who works in a corporation who needs to deliver a product on a certain date is worried. 
I don't know that she feels totally confident they're going to be ready to go 10 days from now. Especially because we understand how high the stakes are when we're talking about the Dark Army. She's also asking some of the questions that I think even Elliot would be asking, like, is there an evacuation plan? I don't think she really has the intention that people should die for this. Yeah, and it seems like the objection most people have had to stage two so far has been to killing people. Like, that's Darlene's main problem with it, right? So it makes me wonder why they haven't considered this compromise option of just destroying the data, but evacuating the people. Angela goes a little bit sideways where she asks Irving, did White Rose show you? And so this is in reference to whatever <laughs> in, in the Red Room way back there. I call it White Rose's MacGuffin in my notes. Uh, I hope that at some point we get to see that because I have to say the intrigue is building around whatever White Rose is... Uh, is doing in there. So I think at this point, I mean, we see Irving as kind of a snake oil salesman, right? Like he, mm -hmm. he is a very convincing liar. He's done a good job manipulating Tyrell. Oh yeah. And so when he tells her that, you know, he's seen it, he believes that he believes anything is possible. I don't know how much of that is truthful and how much of that is really just designed to keep her on this path. Yeah, but it seems like Angela buys it. At least that was my impression. Oh, I think she 100% <laughs> buys it. Because the thing is, even though Angela has sort of become more cynical and a more powerful actor, I think there is still an idealistic, hopeful part of her that hasn't been extinguished yet. Do you notice also that um, she's kind of become more fearless over the seasons? Because I would never wear an entirely white outfit to a barbecue place myself. <laughs> Yeah, like on your list of terrifying things, it's like she wears all white, she ate a yogurt on the expiry date, <laughs> you know, she's sass in price. She's just she's getting very bold. So let's take a look now at Elliot's apartment. Elliot has brought Darlene there, and he's trashed the place. He's really afraid of uh, bugs or cameras, so he kind of trashed the place to see if there are any of those. He's, I think, being more direct with Darlene than he has been for a little while, so he explains to her the stage two has never been called off. It's still a go. Yeah, he's monitoring on his computer. Darlene's kind of flabbergasted about this whole thing where she says, you know, why didn't you just, like, send this in as an anonymous tip? Like, why are you complicating your life and making this hard for all of us? <laughs> and his answer kind of seemed a little, um, like, plot device-y to me because he just says, I have some... I, I'm being compelled for some reason not to or I want to be the one to find them, which is such a, a TV trope. Well, and that this idea that he can't let go of what they started, that he needs to see it through to the end... And maybe he does. I mean, I could see it being credible that the character feels like his fate is also bound up with the fate of the plot overall, or that this might be his last chance to do. Because remember, he's always struggling with these feelings of guilt and responsibility. Like, maybe this is a, an opportunity for him to do some good. Mm -hmm. But either way, um, they're not going to send it in as an anonymous tip. They're going to hatch a far-fetched and difficult plan. <laughs> That's what they're going to do. You know, one thing we should note before we get to that, um, she had asked once if Elliot was working with Tyrell, and he kind of said no and dodged that question. But she asks again here, and he says that uh, Tyrell must be involved in stage two. So if she still is going to be relaying any information to Dom, then no, that's something that she didn't know before. Intriguingly, uh, Shayla's apartment has remained vacant the entire time since her death in two seasons ago. Yeah, it was sad to get a reminder of Shayla. It is. She was a character I really liked. Um, I'm actually rewatching season one right now with someone who's never watched it before. So you get to relive all those, like, many, many low moments in Shayla's storyline, actually. Yeah. 
But Elliot's had keys since that time, and so the idea is that Darlene is going to stay there for the time being. So she can kind of keep tabs on him. Well, because the idea is that... So he's not losing time during the day any longer, but night is a different story. So she's going to just hang out and stay awake all night in the next-door apartment listening for the sound of his apartment door. And then, should he see Mr. Robody, she's going to follow him into the night. And it's both of their hope that they will find Tyrell this way. And what's funny is, I mean, it's not the... It probably could work, right? It seems like it's similar to the plan where Elliot used lucid dreaming to track down Mr. Robot. It does kind of make you wonder why they don't do that again. Maybe I'm overanalyzing the show. I mean, these episodes are so much slower paced and so focused on kind of character development stuff that I think it lends itself to overanalyzing it because there's not the volume of references and information and plot twists coming at you that have been coming at you for the past two seasons. So maybe that leads us to be a little bit more analytical in our in our musings. I think Elliot here, too, is trying to make a sincere effort to indicate to her that there are two identities that live within him and he's not always in control. Now... New character time. <laughs> uh, I put him down as Fruity Pebbles guy. His name is Nuri. Oh, when did they mention that? They mentioned that in a subsequent scene, but uh, okay. I'm introducing it here just for purposes of continuity. I wonder if they're going to come up again, because I had just thought that they were like a one-off character. Well, I think that this character seems to me to be a bit of a... Is this a straw man or a red herring or something like some other device like this? False flag. That's a what false I wrote. False flag. Ooh, also good for the <laughs> FBI. So... I do love the way this scene is, though. So he's eating Fruity Pebbles. On <laughs> The couch is wrapped in plastic. How, how am I so unobservant? Do you get a glare on your screen when you watch it? Because that can obscure a lot of these details. No, I just don't pay attention. Yeah, yeah. Why, do, why is there plastic on the couch? It's, you know, uh, like it's to keep stains and dirt from getting on oh, the couch. So okay. it's like covers. That sounds very handy, actually. <laughs> Except it looks weird. I bet. Weird, weird. He's like really, really sweaty. He's like in his <laughs> underwear, just like dripping with sweat. And his landline starts ringing and ringing and ringing. And I don't know if that's supposed to be a signal to him because he seems completely uh, unsurprised. Well, I have a... Uh, sorry for interrupting, but this reminded me of a really cool story that happened very recently about this website called Alpha Bay, which was kind of like the successor to Silk Road. So it was like the biggest darknet market and it was taken down by the FBI because they arrested the owner of the site. And you know how in one episode a long time ago, I think it was like the episode where they go to Romero's place and look at his computer, I described something called the cold boot attack where if a computer is running and has the encryption key in memory, then you can pull it off using, using that technique. Um, what they did with Alpha Bay was right before they were about to raid this person's apartment, they hacked into his web server and shut it down. So he would have to go to his computer, log into it, and restart the server. So it distracted him and had the effect of making sure that the encryption keys would be in memory when they eventually confiscated the laptop. So I thought it, was, I thought it could have been that they were trying to distract him so that they could more easily raid the apartment. So you think perhaps it's the FBI calling? I thought so. Because that's who barges through the door next. Yeah, and he doesn't really seem phased. He seems like he was kind of prepared for this. Because, well, because he just kneels down on the floor, puts an F Society mask over his face. And what I love about this, you can hear him. If you've ever tried to wear one of these masks, which I tried to do for the duration of an entire Halloween party. The breathing, right? Yeah, you can yeah. hear his breathing inside so the mask. So creepy. So we're going to see him again in a couple of scenes because right now they just take him away. Let's visit Elliot in his day job that we never, ever thought he'd have at Evil Corp. Yeah, this job that Angela helped him get just recently. He's having 
I think a lot of introspective moments. He's kind of having an existential crisis right now. I think so, because he's starting to realize that maybe Elliot Prime is pretty disposable to Dark Army and all the folks involved in this plot, but Mr. Robot seems very essential and protected. So that's got to be a real shift in his thinking, because I think he thought he had value to that plot and some agency, and I think he's beginning to realize that he's got less and less. And also, I think he feels very conflicted that the idea of this attack in some way excites him. It's mm, speaking to something inside him. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he's kind of taking actions to impede stage two, though, because, um, like we saw in the previous episodes, he has been screwing with uh, the shipments and deliveries and stuff like that. Angela comes by to snoop, I think. Yeah, and I think that she totally catches on to him immediately. Well, he lies to her pretty badly. Um <laughs> But she reminds them they've got some corporate function that night, which I wish we had a bit more information about what that was because Elliot agrees he's going to go to it. It might still come up. I, I just thought it was a way, though, for um, Angela to keep tabs on him and also maybe a way for them to have the opportunity to communicate later because we know that she has stuff that she needs to tell him. I think what's really interesting here is how, um, despite the fact that Angela kind of sees through Elliot's lie, she doesn't call him out on it and she doesn't reveal that fact. She kind of keeps it close to her chest. So I think that that is... Uh, a very Angela thing to do, because she's just like playing chess with him at this point. Douchebro 1, his neighbor, is still there. I think that this is like Douchebro 2, or, or is uh, it 3? There's so many of oh them Oh my god, point. there's so many. E-Corp Douchebro. <laughs> E-Corp Douchebro 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we should stop numbering them, you're right. Um, I think his purpose is just there to remind us that there are just gross people in the world. And yeah. I'd just like to say, I, I don't think he's splashing everything in sight. I really don't, <laughs> I really don't buy that I'm at all. dork. It's always the people who say that the most who are lying. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they'll fire that guy. Anyway. <laughs> maybe when he like, sends out an internal memo. Ooh, maybe when he sends out an <laughs> internal memo. And then we can all write internet columns about it. <laughs> let's, let's get out of here. Let's go back over to the FBI. The note that I have for him is creepy dude is creepy. <laughs> <laughs> we should take pictures of all these like, silly little notes in our notes. He is creepy. Remains creepy. But that being said, let's get out of here. Let's go back over to see what's happening at the FBI. Yeah, it seems like Dom is using that very familiar good cop, bad cop routine, although this time it's a different bad cop. Well, I think this is her first stab at bad cop. Yeah, I think that there's one point where she kind of takes her gloves off and she shows that she means business. I find this really interesting that she's trying this approach with him in a way that we haven't seen her do with other suspects before. My interpretation, though, isn't that she's experimenting with a new strategy. It's that she just has like a switch she can flip and she always knows which approach to take with which suspect. Exactly. So what is it about this guy that makes her think that that's the right road? I still don't know. Well, he's doing a much more effective job of stonewalling her than uh, the previous people we've seen being interrogated. Because Darlene, she was like, give me a lawyer. I'm evoking my fifth Fifth Amendment privilege? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. us Canadians, like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, like Darlene had some sass. Yeah, but then she immediately opened up right after that. And I think that this guy doesn't even give them an inch because, as they say, like, give him an inch and take a mile. So he just is not saying a single word until they eventually beat it out of him. Uh, Metaphorically, of course. (laughs) Metaphorically, in this case, at least. Um, So there, he's totally silent. She's trying to find out who his leader is. And the only indication we get of his connection here is he flinches ever so slightly when she mentions White Rose. And I think Dom noticed that. 
I think she picked up on it for sure. And her partner picks up on this too because her partner thinks the whole White Rose angle is sort of a fairy tale and silly and perhaps even a made-up character for the benefit of all these people who consider themselves to be dark army foot soldiers. We were just talking about this horrible Kevin Spacey news, so I'm sorry to invoke uh, a reference to one of his films now, but it reminded me of uh, Kaiser Soze in The Usual Suspects, if that's how that's pronounced. Did you ever see that movie? I didn't. It's about uh, a very like mysterious crime boss who nobody really ever actually works with directly, but everybody has kind of heard the rumors about how ruthless they are. There's one, like the way they introduce the character is by um, having someone, I think they like kidnap his wife and kids and try and blackmail him, but he kills them first so that they don't have any leverage over him. Wow. Yeah. That's dark. Yeah. There's a, a big twist at the end though, so good movie. But well, not anymore. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. <laughs> It is. I'm disappointed, too. That's disappointing. What were we talking about? We were talking... So, I want to talk about Dom just for another second, because I think part two of her toughness here is, I think working on this case, I think is sucking the humanity out of her, in a way. And that hopefulness that she always seems to have about people and about society, I think that's just all fading away. So, I don't know if this is just her being weary and sick of it, or if this is her being scared that something critical is about to happen and she's not as far along in her investigation as she wants. But she seems deflated, generally. The answer that they get, the only information they get from this guy, she says, who is your leader? He says, F society. And I think that it's still not clear if this is um, like some dark army nonsense and there's going to be some kind of plot twist here. But if this person is uh, truthful when they say that their allegiance is to F Society, I think that it's an interesting take on it because F Society, of course, is influenced by the real group um, Anonymous, which is uh, completely decentralized. So I think that if they're kind of trying to go that way in the show too, where it's more like... Um, it's more like a case where anybody can take out an action in the name of F Society. I think that that's an interesting way they could do it, too. I actually, that's what I interpreted from it, was I thought, are they trying to shine a light on how hard it is to investigate or prosecute non-hierarchical groups and groups that have loose affiliations or where anyone can declare an affiliation? So is that what they're trying to say, that that's a powerful form of organizing for that reason? So I'm going to cut ahead to the very last scene of this episode, just because I think that it kind of confirms some of our suspicions about this scene. Uh, you know when Angela and Mr. Robot are talking in Angela's apartment? Yes. On the TV in the background, um, you can only see on the on the Sharon on the bottom of the screen. That's a word we just learned. We like a lot. I, actually, I just learned it. It might actually be Sharon though. So I'm always afraid to use words that are like kind of pretentious. For if you get them wrong, it's even worse. But I, I digress because the important part is that um, they have formally linked F Society to Iran, like uh, White Rose had talks about in. The episode before last? Previous episode, yeah. yeah. Some, some recent episode. So I think that this could be part of that. Oh, that's such a good catch. I didn't catch that. Now who's got no attention to detail? I found it on Reddit. Thanks, Reddit. All right, let's go back to the Elliot and Darlene storyline. Actually, sorry, I'm going to... This isn't a subsequent scene, but I think I want to tackle it here with a partner and Dom talk out in the hallway. Oh, yeah. Dom's partner is annoyed at her approach. Uh, he thinks... Though, again, we talked about White Rose isn't real and not relevant. Yeah, and Dom says that nobody else in the FBI is taking the threat of White Rose and the Dark Army seriously. This kind of made me wonder, like, is this guy Dark Army too, or are they just going to keep cycling through, like, Dark Army FBI agents? Are they all Dark <laughs> Army? Well, and Dom's got some good questions. I mean, why did this guy just surrender to them? Why did he make it so easy to take him in? Why did he hand them his location? You know, he could have been more sophisticated about it and he didn't choose to be, which is why I think this is kind of a straw man, red herring, or 
false flag or any of those analogies we used earlier. One thing I just remembered, though, they said that it was uploaded from the same Vimeo account. So that means that this guy has hacked F-Society. Exactly. Scary. Scary. All right. All right. Now let's go back to Elliot and Darlene. I love this scene. <laughs> there were some good quotes in it, at least. I actually really like this scene, too. I think Darlene's humor is back, and some of the warmth between them is back. It's nice to see that. It is really nice to see that. They, uh, they take little flips out for a walk. <laughs> I, I feel sad because we were so happy when Elliot got Flipper back, but his life has been in such disarray that it doesn't really seem like Flipper's situation has improved much. No, I feel pretty bad for Flipper, actually, uh, especially as the episode goes on. Yeah. I think part of this is um, you can see increasingly Darlene, who's always been pretty independent and tough. Mm -hmm. She seems really lonely. Yeah. I guess um, for somebody in her situation, well, she is like a fugitive. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess she kind of needs to lay low. I think there's a lot of nice sibling stuff here. She gets a real apology out of Elliot, which is something I think we've been waiting for for some time. Yeah, since the beginning of the season, at least. Anything else this is that he should have believed her. There's a nice part here, too, where, because, of course, they're preparing for perhaps the worst and maybe last confrontation of their lives when, they, when Darlene does follow him to Tyrell and Dark Army. And she asks if he'll form a vengeance pact with her. <laughs> I loved it. And I, I also loved how little hesitation Elliot had when she asked him that. Yeah, and I thought maybe that's just a nice thing siblings do. Maybe that's a tradition we've missed out on. So I just thought I would ask you, you know, if someone, um, if a hacker ring and an executive uh, ever murdered me, you, (laughs) of course, would go after them, wouldn't you? I always thought that this was just implicit. I I appreciate that. (laughs) I appreciate that. I would do likewise for you. Good to know. They don't even just have to be a hacker ring and an executive, (laughs) you know. Gotcha. So, yeah. Okay, now that our vengeance pact is in place. They finish the walk. Everything seems okay. Darlene goes into her current uh, hangout, Shayla's old apartment. And there's a couple little interesting tangents in what Darlene is viewing. So first, she's looking up trips to Budapest. Like she had mentioned to Cisco in that flashback. And then the other thing that she looks at, so this one, this gets us a little bit down the rabbit hole of this sci-fi alternate realities are we going to time travel what are we doing this season piece because she watches it's a movie um well it's a fictional movie it never existed called shazam Mm -hmm. um starring uh comedian and actor sinbad (laughs) do you remember sinbad no i guess it's an 80s thing yeah before my time before your time but um and so the story about shazam and you know we'll post a couple links to articles um on our twitter account is that many people remember seeing this movie when they were kids and people have like offered bounties if you can find a copy they've searched all over but this movie never existed i don't understand like it's you said it's a fictional movie well people remember it as a real movie but sinbad says I never shot anything like that. And he made a movie called Kazam. That's probably what people are confusing it with then. Because, I mean, how can you... Like, is there a Wikipedia article for it or not? That's what I'm asking. (laughs) Well, we should look. (laughs) There probably is, because enough people believe in it that they probably entered one. Like, the thing that doesn't click for me is that if it never existed, then where did people even get the idea about it, you know? Well, here's the far-fetched theory. So this is referred to sometimes as the Mandela effect. Oh, I've heard about that. And so this, the theory is that if enough people have a collective memory, even if the mass of people, a majority of people, think it's false, that perhaps they're from a parallel reality in which that was real. Huh. And so they've crossed over to this one 
That's weird. <laughs> I like that this... So there's... I think this show's got to walk a careful line between tech and woo. Yeah. And so this is like a little bit on the edge of that. But apparently the name of the theory comes from... There's some group of people that have a, a memory that Nelson Mandela was never imprisoned, I believe. The example that I've always heard is about the spelling of the Bernstein Bears. If it was spelled E-I-N or A-I-N. I think it's E-I-N. It's A-I-N. Oh my God, people were from different realities and we're only just learning it now. Isn't it Baron, like Stein Bears? Like the way it's spelled, not the way it sounds. Baron Stein, huh. I think. Are like, we? I could be wrong. I could definitely be wrong. Here. We could both be wrong. We <laughs> yeah. have some investigating to do on it. It's actually Baron Stein. But anyway, so that's just an interesting, um, like, little reference that is also kind of built into Darlene's viewing in this episode. I wonder if that's related to the psychological phenomenon like um, conversion disorder, which I think is like the actual term for mass hysteria, where I know that sometimes if a bunch of people are on a plane together and they all get the idea that they're like getting a headache, they can fall under the impression that they're being poisoned or something like that and actually oh, believe yeah. it. Oh, yeah. I wonder if that is linked because I think ideas are contagious. Yeah, exactly. And placebo effect is strong. Man, that's so interesting. But before we get, I guess, too far down that... It's 1.48 a.m. when Darlene looks at her watch and she hears Elliot's apartment door open and Mr. Robot is here. She follows him out into the street. The streets have not changed. People are still burning shit. There are these weird encampments and <laughs> informal like black markets. Garbage has really started to pile up and it reminded me of the notorious trash worker strike in Toronto, I think, of 2002, something like that. When the Pope visited. The Pope visited? Yeah, it was at the same time. That's hilarious. Were they, like, protesting? <laughs> well, it was completely unrelated, but yeah, yeah, there was, like, garbage and rats, like, Jeez. just all over the place here. And it was summer. It was, like, July. It was hot, hot garbage. That must have smelled horrible. It did. It did. I was here. <laughs> um, so the streets haven't changed. What's changed is Darlene's awareness of what's going on because she follows them just far enough to see Mr. Robot duck into the entrance of a subway station to have a conversation with Angela... So this is kind of a revelation for her that Mr. Robot and Angela are working together. Uh, she tries to follow them, but it seems like they have a pretty good strategy for losing their tail. They hop into a cab. She loses them. And I don't know if she knows what to do now. I think this reference is something that Angela had spoken about with Irving earlier, where she says that she's um, SDRs. She references that. I had no idea what it was at the time, but after Googling it, it's um, a surveillance detection route. So I think that this plan that they have here to kind of fake going into the subway, get out, getting into a taxi, that's probably one of those. Mr. Robot and Angela get away from Darlene, though, and they arrive at the new safe house with Tyrell. I kind of feel for Angela, who has to tell Tyrell some pretty bad news, which, as we know historically, he does not handle well. <laughs> I think that he, he seems to be getting increasingly volatile, actually, which says a lot because he already snapped and killed someone once. But he um, just loses it, smashes the keyboard, starts throwing stuff around. Have you ever had like a rage quit incident like that? No, personally, no. <laughs> I definitely broke my favorite Xbox 360 controller once after some some bullshit in Halo 3 because I played that competitively and like a team and stuff. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, I'm generally pretty good though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, these things happen. They happen to Tyrell a lot. And the interesting thing, I mean, I know that this parallel is coming to an end um but Macbeth is kind of hopeless without Lady Macbeth mm -hmm. Tyrell doesn't know she's gone yet and also in Macbeth she dies first um 
but he's on his own. He's a loose cannon. Yeah, absolutely. So when Angela says that the shipments aren't going, so remember they, all the paper backups for Ecorp are supposed to be being transported to New York, but Elliot scuttled them. Tyrell loses it and uh, smashes some shit. <laughs> yeah, it seems like he kind of um, he has a uh, he, he doesn't want eighty on Mister Robot when he realizes the trouble that he's caused for their operation. Because Justin, like the previous episodes, he was talking about how they were destined to be together and they're going to be gods in this new world. But now he fairly rapidly disavows him. I think I'm being crazy, but Tyrell's voice doesn't sound right to me in this episode. I didn't notice that, but you could be right. No, I'm probably wrong. But anyway, he sounds weird to me. If only producer Dave was here. If only producer... We'll ask him next episode. <laughs> Tyrell wants to report this to the Dark Army, but Angela reminds him that there are going to be consequences if they're seen to have failed or fucked this up in any way. So she doesn't think that's such a hot idea. I really love how Angela is just completely calm and in control in this situation. Yeah, she's really, like, her her outward, like, doing business mask <laughs> is very, her game's very strong. Mr. Robot is there. He's kind of, like, typing away at a terminal... And he kind of clues into the conversation with a quote, actually. He says, you should never appeal to a man's better nature because he may not have one. Is that a quote from something else or just a quote that you like from the show? It's a quote, actually, from uh, a science fiction writer, Robert A. Heinlein. Oh, he's not the Scientology guy, is he? No, (laughs) I don't believe so. But he was sort of... uh, I'm joking. That's not him. (laughs) We just got a Church of Scientology in my town. Isn't that weird? Are you serious? Yeah. It moved into the space where I used to have my comedy. We workshop. should probably stop talking about it before we get assassinated. All right, let's stop. Let's stop. <laughs> let's go back to this. Robert A. Heinlein, who was a guy who sort of started off kind of liberal, but actually took a hard libertarian uh, turn in his writing. Um, and so he had, but his writing explores the idea of sort of an individual's responsibility to others or the lack thereof. And so there are probably some listeners who are fans who might have some interesting parallels from his work. Um, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress, I think, was the most famous one. Ah. Um, but yeah, you can, you can tweet that at us, Mr. Underscore Rewatch. So I think we have one thing really clear here. Uh, Elliot's going to get his ass fired. <laughs> I don't think he can last at E Corp once he's shown them. He's persistently going to try to scuttle stage two and throw a wrench into the work set every turn. Sucks for him. It reminds me of this... It reminds me of this one guy at my work who got fired within a week. Because <laughs> he was sabotaging shit? I guess uh, that's not a fair question to ask. That's yeah, I, I'm question. not allowed to tell you. <laughs> no. Um, here I also have a note that says, you had one job, Mr. Robot. <laughs> because his one job was basically, I mean, I think everyone's, let me walk that back for a second. There are a couple of different theories about what's happening with Elliot. One of them, I think, that's out there is that he has disassociative mm-hmm. identity disorder. And so the very simple way that people like Angela or Tyrell are conceiving of this is that Mr. Robot, as an alter, just gets to take over whenever he pleases and control the situation. And so his one job is basically to keep Elliot out of this till they can get the job done. And in their eyes, he has failed. He doesn't really have very much control over himself like that. Tyrell, I think his heart... I think this is the exact moment when his heart breaks in two. It's been a while since we heard that. It has. Where he says that Elliot's not a god, he's a cockroach. And remember, (laughs) that's what he called that waiter at Steel Mountain. Yeah. So, wow, he's as bad as a man who lives to serve him salad. So he's really fallen in Tyrell's esteem. And they get into a physical fight. 
Yeah, because he kind of calls out Mr. Robot and says that he wants to take over the project. Which I guess from Tyrell's perspective is... Well, no, actually, I was going to say it maybe makes sense because Elliot is very volatile. But I was just talking a second ago about how Tyrell is approximately equally volatile. So um, he's not really in the better position to run it. If you ask me, he'd probably rage quit and smash it like that keyboard. <laughs> probably. I think they both have an argument about whose revolution this really is now. Who does it belong to? And this, I think, is interesting because remember, like F Society, at the beginning, we saw it as this kind of collective. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're vying for individual power and control here. So this is a dramatic turn for this operation. What messes this part up, though, is that Elliot is phasing in, and they do some visual effects to kind of show that he's cutting back into consciousness. Yeah, it was very disorienting, and I thought that that must have been deliberate. Now we see that, remember, Irving gave Angela something after Elliot was shot for safekeeping? Yeah, and I guess they didn't really reveal what that was at this point, but now we find it out. Because I had assumed it was the popcorn gun, Chekhov's gun. Yeah, luckily, luckily not. <laughs> luckily or unluckily, because it seems to be a kit full of syringes of some very powerful sedative drugs. Yeah. Uh, so she jabs one into Elliot just as he's coming to... And this is kind of a powerful moment for the Elliot character because he's calling us, the hello friend, quite desperately to say, do you know what's happening? Can you tell me what's happening as he blacks out? Yeah. It's really a very uh, dark moment for Angela's character, I think. But I also, I also kind of sympathize with her a bit because you realize that when Mr. Robot um, kind of starts to face back into Elliot, he kind of loses control for a bit. He's not really sure where he is. And when Angela is about to administer these drugs to him, she has a look on her face that makes me think that she actually really is worried about him and that she wants to make sure that he's actually okay. I think, too, Angela still believes that all of her actions are guided by a much greater good and that this is kind of her collateral damage, that she has to do this to Elliot, who I think she does have care for. So it's a very dark moment, but that's the end of this scene, and we cut away to, uh, I think, a lighter-hearted scene. Yeah. Actually, no, I take that back. Well, it's, it's lighter-hearted. It's not light-hearted, but it's lighter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no strictly light-hearted scene in, in any of the show, but... Um, <laughs> Let's look at what Dom and Darlene are doing uh, at a bar. So they're meeting one-on-one, -on -one, breaking protocol for both of them. The impression I got is that Darlene has already been drinking for a while. Do you get that too? I thought she's either been drinking for a while or she's just really distressed. Yeah, like she definitely seems like she's not doing so well. I think she's, she's lonely. She's tired of lying to people and being a traitor to everyone that she cares about. And she's also desperate for social contact. So she... Um, she tries to ask Dom just some small talk, personal chit-chat <laughs> questions. You know, this actually was a bit of a red flag for me because do you know those, um, like, the chain posts that go around on Facebook that are like, um, your superhero name is, like, the street you grew up on plus your pet's name or something like that? Do you know what, do you know what those are about? No, tell me about that. They're the answers to your security questions to log into your Facebook account or, like, other... Other password-protected areas where you can use, like, a recover password feature and answer security questions. Oh, so, so my month of birth is this. My exactly. year of birth is that. So that, that's how you can kind of get information about someone. And it made me think she might be trying to find out more about Dom for that purpose. I think that's a bit of a stretch, though. I just thought it was worth mentioning. I actually, I'm really interested in that. There could be a dimension of that, right? Or if she's planning to flee and need some ID and credentials. 
It reminded me of um, this Twitter joke that went around that I'm paraphrasing right now, but it was like, your robot name is your social insurance number plus the year you were born. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that. Like, your social insurance and employee ID number, yeah. please. <laughs> We should uh, we should create a mock one then. But we should make like your hacker name. This is actually oh. okay. Bonus content idea. Bonus content <laughs> idea. Um, you better be writing it down in your analog notebook. I am writing it down <laughs> in my analog notebook. Hacker idea. <laughs> <laughs> so here I I want to say this is a very proud moment for me because there was a theory I told you once on the sidewalk, but I thought it was too silly for the show. Oh, you never mentioned it on the show. I never mentioned it on the show, but then way, this is just hearsay. Way back when Dom and White Rose are talking, and White Rose is showing, sorry, Zhang, he's yeah. presenting Zhang shows the wardrobe of his sister's clothes and the room full of clocks. Um, Dom is really cagey and uses gender-neutral pronouns about a former partner. And I was like, I bet you that badass yeah. lady is queer. And it seems like Darlene picked up on that too. Yeah, exactly. Because I thought there's only two kinds of folks who use terms like that. They're like queer people and people who are trying to make queer people feel comfortable. Yeah. And so um, I, I go for singular they out of solidarity, but I also just kind of want to keep you guys on your toes about whenever I bring somebody home for Christmas. I like it. <laughs> I'm I like just it. Joking. Surprise us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, I feel very vindicated that this is the only theory I've had about the show that's been correct, but it's a good one. It's a, it's a good one. And kind of opposite to the way they out Gideon. Yeah, I, I was actually just about to say that because I think that this is kind of... Um, I don't know if it's more organic way, but it's definitely more organic than they did with Gideon. Well, I feel like this is a conversation that would actually happen because I thought in law enforcement, and I don't know what that culture is, you know, is it cool to just be out among your colleagues? And, you know, how personal is Dom really with anybody at work? Mm -hmm. but it's probably good that she's not because Santiago is a snake we now know. But, <laughs> um, anyway, that's a bit of a digression. But where this is all leading, so... This is a common tactic, I think, in um, interrogation or in conflict resolution where they try to build some rapport. So now they know about each other. And Dom really steps in it when she asks about Darlene's relationship status. And she said, well, it didn't end very well. Yeah. Remember, you were there. Uh-huh. And actually, I was going to mention that scene a minute ago because she was talking to Cisco about how she was getting... Um, getting tired of always looking over her shoulder and being afraid that the police are going to find her any day. So this conversation is very similar to that, too, for that reason. That's true. And so at this point, Darlene, I think she thinks she's established enough common ground that she makes a breakaway. So she tells Dom she doesn't really have anything for her, but she's got a lead, and she has to go it alone, and she can't wear a wire. Dom doesn't really like that. Of course, that's... I'm sure, against every policy they must have. But Dom's kind of desperate. She says something big is going to happen, and they need to intercept it. Here, I think the saddest part of this is Darlene acknowledges that even though she's got legal immunity, that at the end of all of this, and I think it's vague for a reason, that whatever happens, she's going to lose her brother. Yeah, which is sad to think about. Absolutely. And so that's where they leave uh, each other. All right, so um, so remember that uh, our friend Irving steps in whenever things have gotten a little sloppy joes. <laughs> I love that. I kind of love, I want to read, I really hope that the show producers will make the novel that he's writing available. That would be cool. I would, like, 10 for 10, read that novel. Have you read the frames that they show you on the show? Because some of it, it's, like, really funny, I think. 
I can't tell. I feel like he's probably writing like a, like a the big sleep like type detective novel. Like I think that's what you know his whole character leads me to believe. I could believe that. I do think though the way that he's referencing like writing his book and wanting time to write his book is a bit overblown. Did he talk stage. about it again in this scene? Yeah, he did. Yeah, I, I was just saying I kind of skimmed this scene in my rewatch, to be honest, so I'm even less observant than usual. <laughs> so basically, this is Tyrell calling on Irving. He wants Mr. Robot slash Elliot out of the picture. Irving says this is YP, not MP, which I think is this is your problem, not my problem. I wrote down those four letters, but not what they were. I think that's a very good guess. That's my best guess. Um, Tyrell wants more time. White Rose says no. There's not going to be any more time. They're very strict about the Monday schedule. Irving again shows that he is really gifted at manipulating people and giving them exactly what they need to buy into any particular plan. And he's done this to Tyrell before. So he says, you know, hey, it's not about these other guys. Forget these other guys. You're the god. This was your destiny. And of course, I think all of that speaks to Tyrell. Who's it does. Lost, well, he doesn't know he's lost everything, but he's lost an awful lot. I felt like he was layering it on so heavy, though, that it must, like, I would feel so awkward if I was trying to lie about something like that. You must either really be, like, a true mercenary, like, you do any job, or have really true belief. Like, if he really does believe, like, Angela believes what White Rose is selling to them, then maybe he thinks this is all <laughs> for, like, for the greater good of humanity. I don't know. You know, this Seinfeld quote where George says, it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> well, <laughs> it takes two to lie, Marge. One to lie and one to listen. <laughs> so Tyrell uh, is adequately satisfied by this, but he's got a problem because remember, he's been hacking into his baby monitor. And now it's offline. So he thinks that Joanna is just laying low. They've done a really good job of keeping this from him. But he says, okay. He'll get this done. He'll get it done on time. But he wants to see his family. And that after it's executed on Monday... So again, the timeline's been accelerated, right? It was 10 days from now. Now it's Monday. They are going to flee to... They're going to flee to Ukraine. I noticed that they said the Ukraine, which is like a major pet peeve of mine. Me too. Well, we're both Ukrainian. <laughs> Maybe so. that's why. I think it is. Because we don't say the Greece. Or I do sometimes. But it's talking about the food. <laughs> All right, we don't say the Uruguay. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we do, I don't know, I don't know. But um, because they won't extradite them. So Irving very convincingly says that he will inform her and he'll organize everything. But Tyrell needs something more. He needs to be able to call on the full force of the Dark Army. And that is a statement so ominous, I cannot even comprehend what that will mean. I think that we get a bit of a hint at that in the preview for the next episode, but let's not get into that just yet. <laughs> because uh, some of us haven't watched it. Yes, exactly. So Joanna has basically fallen off the radar, and we know that the FBI is kind of trying to keep her murder under wraps, and I guess that explains it. But can you really believe that they were able to escape um, like the Dark Army finding out about that? Because the impression I get is that Irving knows. Irving definitely must know, because remember, Santiago knows. He's the one who says they're going to hide the baby. They're going to cover everything up. So I just find it really hard to believe that they're able to keep it from him at this point. But I guess that's how it turns out. Well, I just wonder, I mean, I guess if they can keep it out of the media, they can keep it out of Tyrell's hands. Because I guess they're controlling his movements and where he stays and what access he has. Yeah. But everyone else knows. So they're using him, too, as the other piece, where I don't know who isn't a pawn. Knowing how he reacted uh, to the problem with stage two when he broke his keyboard and all that other stuff earlier, it makes me wonder how he's going to react when he finds out something as serious as this has happened. Not well, I don't think. Not well. Okay, so we're closing in on the end of the episode. 
Angela is in her apartment making a phone call to Price. I thought it was really cool that at this point she is able to make demands of him. Like, she just calls him up and asks for what she needs, which is Elliot to be fired. What I think is interesting and where I think she's going to find herself in trouble, though, is that she says she'll return the favor. And so Price is going to be able to call on her for something pretty heavy. And right now she's got dual allegiances, I think. Because, well, I don't know if she's got an allegiance to E-Corp. I don't know if that's fair, if that's more of a vehicle for her to do this work. I think that's right, but it also um, is just very interesting how she is manipulating the CEO to the detriment of his own company. Because, of course, the goal of this is to further stage two and further damage E-Corp. Exactly. She gives him no explanation and says that her discretion is important. Yeah, that's basically the only explanation she gives. And I think he hesitates, but I think ultimately he's okay with that. Yeah. And maybe that's because he understands what favors she can offer him in the future. Or maybe he just knows that her, like like he says, her discretion is worth considering. Well, and remember, he's got knowledge now because Zhang told him that Angela and White Rose know each other. Oh, my God. But do you think Angela knows that? No, she definitely doesn't know that. So when she, like, she might be writing a check that she can't cash, you know what I mean? In terms of what he might ask her to do. But that remains to be seen. Because we actually close out the episode. It's still Angela in her apartment. Uh, Mr. Robot is still there. Yeah, he's woken up from those drugs. They both realize that Elliot saw everything. But they don't really know. Like, maybe he'll think it's a dream or something. They hope he'll think it's a dream. That's for sure. I guess that's their only hope at this point. Uh, I hope she's got a few more syringes in there. If she's (laughs) going to keep this under control. She tells him he's got to stay for the weekend. So I guess she's his captor. What's going to happen to Flipper? Why is that the most troubling part to me of this? (laughs) Because so the very very last two points that are important... Mm -hmm. They get a text from Irving saying they're still going to be ready to go on Monday. Yeah, it reminds me about this joke that I heard. And I feel bad that I'm always paraphrasing and never giving the comedians the proper credit they deserve. But I remember this uh, one joke about how you can go see a movie that's horribly violent, lots of gore, like pushing ladies downstairs. But as soon as you kill a dog, they make you leave the theater. That's really dark. (laughs) (laughs) I would also ask you to leave the theater. (laughs) Yeah, for that. (laughs) But it does remind me there was a recent study that came out that showed that humans actually have more empathy for dogs than for people. Wow. And I thought we had to do a study to know that. Like, <laughs> look at the way people will walk by, like, a homeless person on the street, and then the way, like, if they saw a lost dog, that they would react. Like, okay, science. I wonder how they quantified that for the purpose of that study. Well, the way that they did it was they asked people um, either to, would they donate to help save a dog's life, or would oh they God. donate to a critically ill child. You know, there are like GoFundMes for vet bills, so we can probably look at that data too. And in the States for medical bills, so they could probably really do uh, (laughs) proper... Anyway, I was saying we're very off course. So we get one more piece of information before we leave Angela's apartment. Irving sends a text. Everything's going to be ready to go on Monday. The last scene is Darlene packing up, so I guess maybe she is going to Budapest. Yeah, that's the impression I got. And, you know, I shit-talked the music earlier, which was unfortunate, because I just remembered that they play Elliot Smith in this scene, and I felt like it was so appropriate. Actually, it is a pretty good fit here. Um, She returns the Polaroid that she had just stolen from Elliot to his apartment. I'm not sure what the significance is of that yet. And she just leaves Flipper there. So sad. I guess she probably can't take him with her. Anyway. Sorry, Flips. Sorry. I feel like uh, when you have a character and Elliot Smith playing in the background, though, that is even more indication that they're going to die. <laughs> is that what plays in that 
when the and Royal Tenenbaums when the man tries to die by suicide? Never seen it. Probably, mm. though, because I bet that a lot of people kill themselves Elliot Smith. It's practically like... No, nah, I don't know where I'm going with that. Is that a trope? I'll admit to you, I mix up Elliot Smith and Elliot Brood. <laughs> uh, well, that, that, that makes sense, because his music is so brooding. Well, let's... I guess that's the end of our episode, so we just have to brood until next week when we get some more information. Thank you for listening to Mr. Rewatch. We recorded this episode in Toronto. If you enjoyed our episode today, we'd like to ask you to consider participating in a movement called Tampon Tuesday. This movement believes that women should not have to choose between menstrual supplies and other necessities of life. So please consider donating some menstrual supplies to shelters uh, or food security programs or other groups uh, in your community. I'm Devlin. And I'm Erin. Bonsoir.